Welcome to the Investing Tutor Podcast, the show for professionals looking to master the most up-to-date strategies needed to build wealth and provide a stable financial future. Here's your host, Dr. Hans Boateng. Hey friends, Dr. Hans here, the Investing Tutor, and I have an incredible episode for you today. Joining us on the podcast, a repeat guest, is Erin Lowry. She has written several books. I like to say the Brooke Millennial Series. And her most recent book just came out. It is Brooke Millennial Talks Money. The scripts, stories, and advice to navigate awkward financial conversations. So with the launch of Erin's book, I wanted to have her back on the podcast to catch up on how she's been during the pandemic and to dive into this new book. So you all help me welcome Erin Lowry. Erin. Wonderful to be back. Thanks for having me. Yes, it's an absolute pleasure. So Erin, right before the pandemic hit, I remember also on Twitter, it was either November or December, and you shared the major milestone and accomplishment. You had taken some money from your emergency fund and then paid off, I believe it was uh, the remainder of you know your student debt. So tell me, in that moment... Emotionally, how did you feel right before taking that action? And how did you feel after? I know you've you've talked about how you never expected that a pandemic would happen, you know, after that event. So tell me, I want to go through the emotions of the feeling of one going into the emergency fund, two, the feeling of being debt free. And then the emotion of, oh my gosh, a pandemic hits. The entire world is lacks liquidity, right? In terms of capital, tons of people being laid off, business dries up. Now, like, what is the emotions like in that moment? So yeah, walk us through what that 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 timeline. It was so emotional because money is not rational. Money is emotional. And for a little more context for the listeners, my husband and I got married in 2018 and he came into the marriage with north of $50,000 of student loan debt. And I wanted it gone as fast as possible. So we were paying off the student loans very aggressively. And that was personal choice. You do not have to pay off your student loans that quickly. We you know, annihilated the private one first because that has such high interest rates. And what remained were federal loans. And he's a public school teacher. Truly, we could have taken the slow and easy path. And he could have even been on public service loan forgiveness. But for emotional reasons, because money is emotional, I wanted it paid off. And when we got to December of 2019, I want to say... And I apologize for not remembering the exact numbers off the top of my head, but I think that there was going to be a balance of about $4,000 after the big payment that we made on it. We're like, honestly, our emergency fund is in a really good place. I really would love to just kick off 2020 with a clean slate. Let's just pull money out of the emergency fund and pay it off. And I even very distinctly remember somewhat flippantly saying, hope we don't go into a recession. 
ha 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 ha. <laughs> and, you know, everyone understands the timeline. It was December of 2019 that this happened. We started January of 2020 completely debt-free, which was a wonderful feeling. Immediately could start redirecting the money that we were putting towards student loans, towards other big financial goals, both savings and investing. I felt great. And then about six weeks later, all of a sudden we start hearing about this thing called the coronavirus. And we live in New York City, mind you. And uh, about two weeks after that, or four weeks after that, I should say, and the whole world shut down. And I'm self-employed. A lot of my work are speaking opportunities. And those dried up immediately. I had contracts canceled left and right. There are some articles that I was scheduled to write, and budgets got frozen, and those got canceled. And my, I felt like the bottom was falling out in terms of my business. Fortunately, I had actually experienced something somewhat similar prior in actually mid-2019. I had gone through an experience of going on book tour for my second book, Broke Millennial Takes on Investing. And then the end of that tour, which I spent money on, coincided with a summer slump, which is very common in my industry. And I think I made like $500 one month. Like that's how bad it was at a period of time. So I already had what I call our doomsday budget, which since the pandemic I have renamed because it just feels way too real life. And I call our bare essentials or bare bones budget, depending on what you're thinking. So I immediately reduced the salary I was taking from my business so that I had more runway in my business bank account. Because who knew when things were going to come back? Very fortunately, my husband, who is a public school teacher, you know, kept a stable job through the whole pandemic. So we ultimately ended up being okay. But I can tell you, March, April, early May, very scary months. Yeah, um, a lot changed really quickly. And um, I'm I'm so glad everything worked out. Um, now your book is out, and um, I'm sure you're doing really, really well. So, Erin, the other question that I had prior to us kind of um, diving into discussing the book is: Do you notice that the personal finance industry has changed drastically as a result of the pandemic? All of a sudden. We've gone from, you know, personal finance before the pandemic where the money experts that were shaming people about uh, debt or the money experts who viewed um, investing um, anything besides, let's say, um, an, let's say an S&P 500 indexed, like there's been so much change. All of a sudden now the the personal finance space understands that hey you know certain individuals have way more debt than others also that in in a crisis debt can be passed which is mind blowing <laughs> and eye opening for a lot of people even though obviously you and I know with federal student loans specifically and and also like a mortgage but more with uh, federal student loans, it it does have some built-in kind of rules which enable or allow individuals to be able to pause them during a financial crisis. But the world got to experience, or if I should say the U.S. got to experience the government taking initiative on that. 
But with regards to like right now, this shift from conservative investing all the way to the other end of the spectrum, which has to do with like options trading, it makes even me, the one who's always been talking about ETFs and you know, long-term stocks, it makes me seem more conservative now. <laughs> have you noticed that? Sh- <laughs> have you noticed that shift? Because when back in the day, when I was talking about ETFs and individual stocks, I was kind of looked at as someone who was a little bit more aggressive. But have you noticed the shift? I was just curious. Well, I do think it depends on what form of personal finance, like Twitter and Instagram, you're on, because there definitely is an uptick in interest in investing, which is very exciting. And do I love the idea of some people thinking that the way in is through things like GameStop and NFTs? Well, I mean, I guess at least you're interested, but I would prefer for a bit more of a holistic approach and that not to be kind of the one way that you're getting into investing. But then on the other side, you still have kind of the old guard of personal finance who are saying things like, you know, if you need a stimulus check, if that's going to change your life, then you are already screwed to begin with, which is a huge problem. Like it has changed the game, but I do think some people need to catch up to that fact. The other thing is this was a crisis unlike any other that we've seen before in the sense that if you look at prior recessions and you looked at the fallout, there was some level of personal culpability that tended to get laid at people's feet. So if you look at, for example, 2008, obviously mortgage-backed securities being a huge trigger of that crisis. And even though so many people were fundamentally duped into buying these products, there still was an element of like, zero percent down that didn't feel sketchy to you like they still were putting culpability on the individual where if we look at the pandemic you could have done literally everything right everything that people like you and me say to do you could have had a year's worth of emergency savings you could have been invested the way that you should have been invested you could have had your perfect debt repayment plan but if you worked for an industry that got shut down, some of which that have been shut down for now over a year, all of a sudden your financial house got turned upside down through absolutely no fault of your own. There's no level of personal culpability in this particular one on that plane. That people losing their jobs, losing their livelihoods, industries being shuttered. And it's not like they could just go out and switch jobs all of a sudden because you physically couldn't even be outside for a period of time. And for some, it was just a waiting game, hoping that they could go back to doing the job that they loved. So I do also think that that hopefully has forced people who perhaps didn't approach personal finance with a level of empathy or understanding or compassion, that that has been an eye-opening experience as well. And it certainly has exacerbated some of the points about whether it's systemic issues that we talk about or just the idea of certain groups of populations having you know, significant advantages when it comes to where you start in your financial journey, or in your access to products, your access to certain career opportunities, all of these conversations, it really has changed the game in so many ways. And we're only just beginning to see what the full you know, other side of this pandemic, which we're almost through, I hope, but we'll see what, what the other side really is going to end up looking like. Yeah, and and that's one of the things that I've admired about you um, over the years is that you've been addressing 
there's systemic issues that have to do with, uh, you know, obviously the U.S., but also in personal finance education, right? Most experts just assume that, hey, you can just pull yourself by the, uh, your, you know, your own bootstraps. You can pay off all of your debt and you can just follow a set of rules and guidelines and you'd be okay like everyone else, right? They just make it seem so simple disregarding the systemic issues that hold certain underrepresented groups um, you know, behind. So I just want to acknowledge you for consistently doing the work with regards to sharing using your platform about these issues. Now, transitioning to your incredible book, what do you believe are some of the important money conversations that need to be had? Oh, to distill down to just a few is quite the challenge. <laughs> there are so many. Should I? <laughs> I know. Should Should I help, I guess, guide the conversation in a particular direction? Well, I will just start by saying that the book is very deliberately split up into four sections because originally I wanted to talk about, you know, this is a book about how to talk about money and relationships. But when you say the word relationships, people immediately think romantic relationships. And this book is so much more than that. It's about how to talk about money at work, with friends, with family members, and with your romantic partner all of which are relationships that we have, but we tend to just think romance when we talk about like the all-encompassing relationship when we say that. And I split it up that way because at the end of the day, you can do all of the correct things to build your financial house. You can be investing to build your wealth. You can have the savings that you need. You can you know, be on the right career path, all of the things. But if you cannot learn how to communicate effectively, if you cannot set healthy boundaries, it's still going to be a persistent problem because one of the biggest truisms in life is that other people are always happy to spend your money. And you have to learn how to set boundaries around that for one, but for two, to also have a way to communicate about your value sets, about your pain points, about your triggers, all of these things that we all have in our own financial journeys. And also conversations about caring for the people in our life. So to me, one of the most important conversations that's detailed in the book is how to talk to your parents about their futures. Because to me, this is a really big crisis that's on the horizon for not only millennials, but certainly Gen Xers and for them even more so because they're much closer to this being a reality. Some of them have already phased into it where Mom and dad might not be in a financial position to afford retirement, to afford, and I don't like to use the term this way, but end of life care, all of that that comes with it. There are not a ton of social safety nets in the United States to provide help and assistance for this. So it does often fall on the family unit. And it's really important for you personally to know for your financial projections and your financial health and the plans that you're making, whether or not financially providing support for a family member is going to be part of that plan. Now, some people know already, sometimes it's cultural, but other times it's not. Or you marry into a family dynamic where your parents might be fine, but your in-laws aren't going to be, or culturally the expectation is different, but that all still needs to be a conversation. Yeah, that was one thing in your book that stood out to me, you know, how to ask your parents 
if you'd need to take care of them financially. You know, in African culture, and I can speak based on my culture, there is this unspoken rule that your parents took care of you, right? From childhood up until up until you turned what 18 and went off. To, actually, in, in Ghanaian culture, it's up until you get married. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they take care of you up until you get married. So when you start um, earning money financially and, and it's the time that they have to retire from work, there's this reciprocity where you now then take care of them, right? It's interesting. Um, in uh, African culture, this is an unspoken, understood rule. In U.S. culture, my wife would say, you know, my parents were supposed to take care of me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So with regards to this section of your book, how, how do you navigate that? And also, I do want to ask, is it an unspoken rule also in the U.S. that you have to take care of your parents? Um, What made you um, kind of write about this chapter? A couple of reasons. A big one from just purely the fear, I guess you could say, that I have for our generation, is that 08 happened at a very tender time. So the Great Recession happened at a very tender time for a lot of people's investment portfolios, and especially a lot of our parents. And depending on how they reacted in 2008, it could have been really financially beneficial for them, or it could have decimated their retirement plans. And at the same time, a lot of millennials were matriculating to college. So parents might have been raiding their 401ks to pay for college at a time where the market went through quite the tumble. They might have gotten fearful about contributing. They might have cashed out. All of these horror stories that you hear. And that has hugely long-term ramifications. Then you also get hit with the pandemic. So all of these things are also happening, not only to our generation as we're trying to age, but to our parents as they're looking at retiring. And you have to wonder, are mom and dad okay? Can they financially retire? And a lot of corporations, particularly for people who were that kind of stereotypical company man or woman, a lot of corporations have devalued pension programs. The system that allegedly was in place for them may not be quite as robust as we thought. So it just matters so much about whether or not they're going to be able to age with dignity and also whether or not you are going to need to financially, emotionally, physically provide support. But the other thing too, I grew up from the ages of 10 to 18 living in Asia, first Japan and then China. So kind of what you were talking about with large parts of African culture, a lot of different cultures within Asia have the same structure. We're like, duh, you take care of your parents. Like that's just a given. So it's hard to say when you look at the United States, since we're not, you know, one united culture, we're a mixing pot of so many or melting pot, I guess the term is of so many cultures. Of course, there are subsections within our country where people are like, uh, yeah, you take care of your parents. How is this a conversation? But if we're talking about the quote unquote, traditional rhetoric in America, A lot of it is around this idea of radical individualism and personal responsibility, which in some parts can be very useful and beneficial and in other ways can also be very toxic. And one way I think that it is toxic 
is that even within family units, there can be a lot of deep individualism where parents perhaps won't even communicate to their kids about the potential problems in their future, in their retirement plan, in their aging process, because they don't want to either burden their kids, they don't want to admit to what happened, they don't want to admit to themselves that financially they might not be able to, you know, age with financial comfort, age with a level of dignity, and that they're going to need help. It can be so hard to get certain parents to engage in these conversations or to take the steps that could minimize some of the potential pain because they aren't willing to ask for help. And some of it is also children avoiding asking and avoiding the conversation as well. So how does that conversation begin? Because to your point, um, you know, based on American culture, it it might be tough for a parent to reach out, you know, to, to their child and say, hey, I need help. So are you suggesting um, that, uh, you know, millennials bring up that conversation to, to see how parents are doing? Yes. And it doesn't have to be, hey, can you afford to retire? That is not the way to go about this conversation. <laughs> Truly, the easiest way to start is to ask them what they want. So just kind of a general conversation around, you know, you can create a fictional friend, you can use a real life friend. Hey, my friend Jackie was telling me recently that her parents just retired and decided to move down to Florida. And it got me thinking, have you guys thought at all about what you want to do for your retirement? Just a really open-ended question to kind of initiate a conversation. A lot of times early on here, we're just looking for some context clues. Even something like a flippant remark of, oh, we're never going to be able to retire. That tells you something. There might be truth in that. There might be some truth in that, but that's worth investigating at some point. This whole conversation doesn't have to have a perfect arc and a conclusion right away. It can be a long-term conversation. But eventually you do want to be getting to the point where it's mom and dad, I just I, I know things have been tough at times or whatever context you have about the family life here. And I just want to know, do you feel that you're going to be able to retire? You can be that direct at some point. Now, they might tell you it's not your business. They might tell you that they don't want to talk about it. They might just walk out of the room and shut the conversation down. That's all stuff that can happen. There are a few different ways, though, to continue approaching it. One is to just keep slowly asking for context or to use your own life experiences to ask for help. Parents love to be asked for help. So if it resonates as true, and if it doesn't feel like, you know, let's say that you're the money nerd in the family, you know your parents aren't, they know that this is the dynamic. If you go and say, hey, I just got a new 401k plan and I was trying to pick retirement investments uh, could you tell me what you would have done? They might be like, yeah, obviously you're digging. Like this is not something that would happen. But it could be, hey, I just switched jobs and I have access to this really great 401k plan. I'm just curious, what did you guys have access to when you were my age? Something like that. It could also be points in life. Hey, we just got married and we're starting to like figure out how to merge our financial lives and or another classic one hey, we just had our first kid and we're trying to do our wills. And how did you guys decide who would get us if something happened to you when we were growing up? 
And it could be like, oh, we've never had a will. That also gives you a lot of information. So, so much of this is mining for data. If your parents seem resistant to engaging in the, what's your financial future look like conversation? Mm. Now, another important conversation that you discuss in the book is talking about money with your romantic partner. Now, now, at what point does that conversation um, show up, right? Like, how does a person judge? Because individuals, let's say, can be dating. And right now, I also don't know the rules of kind of like the, you know, the up and coming generation. Do you still ask someone, do you want to be my boyfriend? Do you want to be my girlfriend? Or is it just understood? I have no clue. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> Yeah, like I honestly don't know. So at what point does a person know to bring up that conversation? Because you can have two people who might have been dating for a month and they just feel so close and attached and they know that they are destined to be together, right? When does that conversation come up? I think about the money talk in a relationship in sort of two different levels. The 101 level really is more around, again, context clues because they're glorious, but you're having conversations about money without directly talking about your financial situation most of the time. So it can be looking to see if lifestyles are compatible, which you can kind of be assessing based on the kind of dates that you go on, where you live, what kind of cars you drive. It can be about the kind of gifts that you give, the kind of vacations that you take. Like that is all sending clues to you about value sets and about whether it's actual income or spending patterns. Now you're going to get to a point though, where you need to actually lay it all out. And anytime I get asked, you know, when do you have that conversation, the really direct conversation about here's my debt, here's my income, here's my investments, here's all my dirty laundry when it comes to finances. I think that needs to happen when you look at that person And no, I could spend the rest of my life with you. When it is clear that that person is going to be a financial decision. And I say it that way because getting married is probably the biggest financial decision you're going to make in your life. And not the wedding, which could be a big financial decision depending on how you choose to have a wedding, the actual marriage itself. Combining your financial life with another person is a huge commitment. And you need to have all of those conversations before you even get engaged. And if you are engaged and haven't had those conversations, you definitely need to be having them now. And I want people to share everything, your income, your savings, your investments, big thing you need to share your financial goals. You need to be understanding how you're investing and saving for them as individuals, what your plans are to do that as a couple, do your long-term goals align? If not, what are we doing to compromise on that? You also need to talk about your debt, your history of debt, and your relationship to money. And a big thing that I think often gets overlooked when people explain how you should be having these conversations is you need to understand your partner's personal emotional relationship with money because that is going to rear up over and over and over throughout your relationship dynamic. How does your partner feel about money? Is it a fearful thing? Is it something that they hoard? Is it something that they worship? Is it something that eh, they're kind of just neutral on, which is the healthiest, by the way, of the relationships to have with money? And a lot of this stems into childhood. 
So it's asking questions like, what's your first memory of money? How does money make you feel? How did you get money growing up? How do you feel talking about money with your family members? Like All those kind of questions will also give you insights. And the reason it's so important is because you're inevitably going to fight about money. At some point in your relationship, those fights are going to happen. And it's really helpful if you can also kind of take a step back and understand what may or may not be triggering your partner in those conversations. If you're making a comment about your partner spending too much, or maybe being too frugal, on the other hand, and they react really poorly, it's probably not just about the money. In fact, it's probably not at all about the money. It's probably about the root that causes that behavior. And so it is important to investigate that and get to know what that is. Wow, that's such a good point. Erin, there's this quote that people tend to, tend to end up with the uh, financial opposite. Is Is that true? I think it can be, which in a lot of ways is actually a really helpful thing. And listen, if it's on very extreme ends, that is going to eventually cause a problem. But what I'm thinking about too, is oftentimes you hear this rhetoric about one's a spender, one's a saver. And yes, of course that can cause tension, but we do admonish the spend, spend, spend part so much in personal finance conversation. And we don't talk enough about like intense frugality is also just another form of a money disorder. Like there's nothing that actually makes that quote unquote better other than your bank account looks better. But like, that's also still like a toxic emotional relationship with money. So you need to also think about, does your partner balance you out a little bit? For me, mine does. We, first of all, should be said, we grew up in very different socioeconomic situations. And that that is one level of our relationships to money that is interesting. But the other thing is I am definitely the more frugal one. And it's not like he's out here spending a ton of money, but he's definitely the one that is more likely to spend a little bit more if it's for his own satisfaction in a lot of ways. One exception being I'm willing to spend more if it saves me time. I really hate waiting for things. (laughs) So I'm the one that is definitely willing to like, outsource laundry, stuff like that, tasks that we now have a washer dryer in our apartment, which is amazing. But before I was all about that, like, oh, no, I will do drop off. Drop off is worth every penny that I'm spending. But outside of spending money for time saving, we had a couch. This is, I think, the classic example. We had a couch that was full on broken for a year. I bought that couch when I moved to New York in 2011 in early 2020, it broke. The frame broke. So if you sat on one end, you, you sank into the couch. And I refused to buy a new couch because my feeling was, well, we're going to move at the end of this lease. So I just don't want to spend the money to bring a new couch in here that we're then going to also have to pay movers to move. I would rather just wait and buy a new couch in a new apartment. But also we sat on a super uncomfortable couch that gave me actual back pain for a full year. If he had been totally his way, he definitely would have purchased the new couch because he also thinks about quality of life around those kinds of choices in a way that I think is fundamentally helpful. And now that we've moved into our new apartment, we have really nested in this apartment. We've made it look really beautiful in a way that I never have before because I didn't think that I valued it. 
and he really pushed to make this place feel homey. Man, he was right. I will mea culpa that one. He absolutely was right that we should have all along made our space look beautiful. And it was worth the money that we spent to make our space look beautiful. But on the other side, if I had had it my way the whole time, I just would have kept that money in our savings account and been like, hmm, more money in savings. Yay. So it is important to think about ways that you can balance each other out. If you're both on one end of the extreme, if you're both hyper frugal, if you're both big spenders, that can cause big problems as well. So it is kind of nice to have the balance. Oh, such a phenomenal point. I think the universe or I would say, you know, God designed kind of like life in this way, right? He because um there's this understanding that balance is important. And the example you gave is is absolutely phenomenal. And to your point, I think people discount, especially um individuals who are often frugal, they discount the value of just experiencing some quality in life. And what I mean by quality is to your point, like a home where you can walk in every day and and it just brings you joy. Like, does that make sense? It does. It, it's yes. Assuming it's not assuming a person is not like in quote taking on exorbitant amount of debt to to furnish that kind of lifestyle, right? Because that's the extreme. But if it's if it's a, it's within a person's, let's say the word budget, I believe that that feeling, which a person is consistently going to get on a day-to-day basis because you live in that environment, is underappreciated, you know? So uh, thanks so much for sharing that example, Erin. And I agree that it is really important to consider, especially if you're feeling slightly attacked because you're on the hyper-frugal end of the spectrum as we're talking about this. First, I see you. (laughs) Because my my baseline behavior is to be one of you. But I, I also think we really need to consider the really hedonic treadmill of it all when it comes to what is enough. Because I have found personally that as income goes up, as investing accounts go up, as savings accounts go up, it's never enough. You always want more. So if the goal is just chasing money, and not using money as a utility to make your life better, that also is an issue that needs to be addressed. Erin, that was absolutely amazing. So for everyone listening right now, I want to do something special. So on Friday, when this podcast comes out, I'm going to post on Instagram and I'll ask a question pertaining to the discussion that Erin and I just had. And the first five people to answer that question will receive a free copy of Broke Millennial Talks Money. So the only requirement is that you uh, live in the U.S. or you, you know, or Europe, you know, I'll be able to send it there or Canada. Um, but yes, the first five individuals to answer the question that I ask on Friday will receive a free copy of Erin's book. So Erin, for individuals who want to connect with you uh, on social media or you know via the digital web, where, where can they connect with you? Well, I'm most active on Instagram. You can find me at Broke Millennial Blog. I also do an Ask Me Anything series every Wednesday. So if you have a question based on what you've heard us talk about today or any other money question, 
please feel free to drop it in there. And you can find me on Twitter at Broke Millennial. The website is BrokeMillennial.com. So if you want to shoot me an email, there's a contact button right at the top of that website that goes directly to my inbox. Amazing. Erin, I always enjoy um, chatting with you. I, I told you the story of how I was listening to Fanoush's podcast and I was walking in a Barnes and Noble and you were on the on the podcast. And at the same time, I was surprisingly ho- holding your book, <laughs> looking <laughs> through the personal finance section. So um it's it's just quite incredible that uh, fast forward to today, um, you know, I've gotten to know you and 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 just love the work that you do. So yeah, uh, thank you so much for coming on, and uh, I'm, I'm sure in in a year or so we'll be <laughs> circling back to have you have you back on. <laughs> well, thank you so much. It is always a pleasure to speak with you and I also just so admire all the work you're doing especially cuz investing education is so critical and just also cheers to everybody that's listening and for doing what it takes to better your financial lives. Mm-hmm.